We look at our world today, it's marked by a lack of authority. Children no longer obey parents. Students have no respect for teachers. Employees dishonor their employers. And everyone denies the authority of God. It starts back with our identity in Christ and our submitting. Families are the building block of society. Therefore, healthy families equals healthy societies, and unhealthy families equal unhealthy societies. A Harvard University study conducted back in 1938 tried to determine the secret of raising successful kids. 268 male Harvard students were tracked for 70 years in the Harvard Grant study, the first of its kind. Their mental and physical health was analyzed, as well as their successes and failures. One clear conclusion emerged. Family is important because a successful and happy life depends on having a loving family and healthy relationships. This is from their study. They would go on to say children's first relationships are with their parents. In their early, in their early years, a child forms a strong bond with uh, their parents, hopefully both parents, which shapes the way they view themselves and others. Strong parent-child relationships help children develop a sense of security. The quality of these close relationships will influence the child's ability to form and maintain relationships in adulthood. Stable, nurturing, and responsive parents, as well as a positive family experience, contribute to the healthy development of children's brain architecture. A healthy family made up of good parenting is found to be associated with better emotional regulation, obedience, academic performance, social competence, and resilience. During adolescence, peer influence starts to overshadow parental influence. Maybe some of you have experienced this. But the strength of families continues to play an important role in shaping adolescent development. Having a strong family with positive relationships is associated with lower levels of adolescent depression and delinquency. If this relationship is strong, a child will be more likely to successfully navigate and form meaningful future relationships. Now this is said from a secular article. Obviously there was no mention of God or anything in this article, but even, even a an article, even a Harvard can, uh, study like this can tell the difference that a strong family has in the upbringing of children. I don't think that's something any of us would argue here today. But we do know that the definition of family is changing. Not that it should, but it is. And the roles in which we play have been changing. Not that it should, but it is. What was God's original design for the family? I think that's the question we should be asking. Sadly, when thinking about family, many of us don't have great memories. Now, I hope many of us do, but some of us may not. In the scripture, there are only really two chapters that don't have sin in them. 
Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man takes place. Even the scriptures has many tragic stories about families. It shows the devastating effects of sin on the family. I mean, think of Adam and Eve, the very first humans created. Adam, when he first sinned, he responded by taking the blame. No, he blamed his wife. Not a good start. They parented two male children at first, and one of them killed the other. Abraham, God's chosen man, married two wives, which was breaking God's design, and he eventually kicked one wife and her child out of the house. Now, I'm paraphrasing. There's more to it than this. But Jacob married several wives, like his grandfather had. His his, uh, sons eventually sold one of their younger brothers into slavery. bit extreme. David, too, espoused many wives. He had had one son rape his half-sister. Then the daughter's brother, Absalom, killed that son that raped her. When we consider biblical narratives, we see many family relationships that were broken by sin. Is today's story any different? It's the same story thousands and thousands of years later. Sin still is destroying family relationships. Therefore, we don't have great models of God's design. We don't have as many as we should. In fact, today we see the effects of sin in the redefinition of marriage. In some cultures, it's still acceptable for men to take take many wives. And in others, they're even changing who can get married and who shouldn't get married. But what is God's design for family? And how can we have the relationships God meant us to have? Are the relationships I have with my family a proper reflection of my heavenly standing in Christ? How should my position in Christ affect my family life today? We can still have a successful family. It's still going to have the effects of sin on it. No one's perfect. We understand this. But in order for us to have this, whether your family is already older or it's just starting or you don't have one yet, it still applies to each and every one of us. And the question we should be asking ourselves is what are the roles or responsibilities of each member of the family? What are our roles? You consider, uh, take sports for instance. We'll take basketball for instance. In basketball, there's five people that can play at one time. And in basketball, you have some teams that are pretty good and some teams that are really good. Some teams kind of in the middle. And something some teams like to do nowadays is try to build a super team. They try to get as many all-stars as they can on one team. And ha, on paper, it looks unbeatable. But what oftentimes happens is if you get too many stars on one team, nobody knows what their role is. Everybody wants to take the last shot. Everybody wants to have the ball. Everybody wants to take all the shots. But unless you can get people on your team to learn what their roles are and to do them well, only then can the team be successful. Whether you have an all-star team or just a simple team, even in a simple team, if you've got everybody that does their role well, they will always have a chance to win every game. So what is our role in the family? And how does it relate to our relationship with Christ? Well, in verse number 18, as Brother Howard read for us earlier, look at Colossians 3, verse 18. This is the Apostle Paul here. He's writing this, script, this 
a letter here to the church in Colossians. And he starts out by giving us some roles in the family, roles in the home for us to consider. And this is how it was intended by God. And yet today it's starting to slip away. He starts out here by saying in verse 18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. So the first thing we consider here this morning is the wife's responsibility to her husband. And we see here in verse 18, the word, the ugly word, the scary word, the word we're not supposed to say anymore in 2023, the word submit. Because let's face it, submission is a negative word now. If you're wrestling, if you're in a wrestling match and you submit, you lose. That's saying, I quit, I give up, I surrender, you win, I lose. How about in war? If you're in war and you realize you're outnumbered, you're going to lose. And unless you surrender, you're going to die. So you tie a white flag and you wave it high. You're surrendering, you're submitting, you're saying, I lose, you win. That's negative, right? Submission is not something you want. Take boxing. You're boxing, and your coach in the corner can tell this guy doesn't have it. He's getting hit around. He's starting to get woozy. He doesn't even know where the guy is. He's swinging wild, and the, if he's a good coach, he'll say, ah. he'll grab the white towel, and he'll throw the towel in the middle of the arena. What does that say? It says, we submit. We, we give up. I don't want my guy to get that last knockout. <laughs> And I might not have them for months afterwards. We quit. Submission is, in our society, often deemed a negative word. But it must be noted that submission does not mean inferiority. To submit is actually a military word. The word simply means to arrange under rank. It means to come up under. So a sergeant is not inferior to his captain. They are equal. However, to have order in military, authority must exist or chaos will ensue. There has to be an order or nobody will know who to go to. There has to be an, a moment's notice. Who's in charge? You're in charge. What do we do? We do it now. And sometimes a matter of seconds, moments is the difference between life and death. There has to be a hierarchy in, in some cases. And it's the same way in a family. And this is how God orchestrated it, that God made the husband and the wife relationship to be equal. However, in the hierarchy setting, he set the man it has to, for the lady to be in submission. And as I said, the word submission does not mean inferiority. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, the Bible actually says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. God is emphasizing here equality. Now, what is not, even though he is speaking of equality here, our equality and unity in Christ does not remove our roles. Because it says in this verse, bond or free, that means master or servants. Yes, they're equal, but... The servant still has to be in subjection to the master. Even though they're still humans, they still have human rights, they're still equal, but at least in the biblical cases, a servant gave sort of a contract saying, for the next several years, I will serve you. And he can't break that bonds. That's what was given. 
When what Galatians teaches does not change the fact that uh, does not change the, the 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 hierarchy, but it is saying that there is equality. This was the role that was given. We know in today's terminology, in liberation, different liberation movements, and these they pit Paul's teachings against one another. They say things like, uh, "We can no longer, we no longer need to submit to anybody." It's my body. I could do whatever I want. It's my choices. It's my life. I could make them however I please. But this is contradictory to God's word because male or female, the Bible says, ye are not your own, but ye are bought with a price. We belong to Christ. Christ, God created us. He made us in his image. And we have obligations and roles to follow him and his example. If our mentality is, I can do whatever I want, then you're going to fall very short of what God has intended for you in your life and your family. Because we are all one in Christ, but it does not give us the ability for us to say, I don't need to submit anymore. I don't need to practice submission even in church. This greatly damages the teaching of scriptures. So the big question is, well, why is the woman called to submit to the man? How is this reflected in scripture? Why? Well, this takes place all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. Way back before sin entered into the world, male and female were given the same roles, essentially. They were the same role. They were to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air. They, they were the same. God gave the woman to the man as a helpmeet, but they were still, they were, they were equal. Before sin entered into the world, there was no need for submission, not amongst humanity. But sin came into the world. And then you jump to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. After sin came into the world, man got disciplined. Some things were given to him. Some punishments were given to the man. Weeds were going to start growing from the ground. The man was going to have to work extra hard day in and day out to provide for his family. It was going to be a grueling time. He would have to sacrifice a lot. And then for the woman, what was her punishment? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. One of the punishments given unto the woman was pregnancy would be difficult, childbearing and delivery would be difficult. I don't think I need to emphasize that anymore. If you know, you know. And lastly, she would be in subjection to her husband. At the fall, at the moment of sin, that perfect bond of marriage was broken. Submission in the context of a loving relationship was destroyed. And as a result, we see brokenness in the majority of marriages today because of sin. You know the statistics, over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And there's different reasons for it. But just understand this, if the home is broken, 
If the home is breaking, it, ble it bleeds into the societies that we live in today. If we look at our society, our society and see that it's crumbling, in which it's never going to be perfect, instead of blaming society for it, instead of blaming the government for it, not that the government's perfect, not that you're perfect, but what we should be doing is looking at our own lives and saying, how could I fix this? How could I, in my corner, in my circle, do better? And it starts back with our family. It starts back even further with our relationship with God. God started his building of a community on earth with marriage. And when the marriage does not work correctly, everything else becomes distorted. The perfect model for a wife to emulate is definitely not her husband. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus was never... Consider what Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Or this is what Paul said. Paul says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. I don't have time to go into different passages, but you know that when Christ was on earth, he was in submission to his heavenly Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. Even Christ himself submitted himself in that human form, but submitted himself unto the Father. If Jesus Christ can submit, submission is not a negative thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because it ties directly in with verse 19. So look at Colossians 3.19. Paul shifts now to, to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. So we've seen a little bit the, the wife's responsibility to her husband well, let's look at the husband's responsibility to the wife now. Now, as a husband, I am not called to demand that my wife submit to me. I am to love her, to care for her, to encourage her to grow in God, and to serve her. I am to serve my wife. My wife is to submit to me willingly. I cannot force it. That would also be marring of the Godhead's relationship. Now, I want you to understand, when Paul was saying this, when Paul was looking at husbands and saying, you need to serve your wife. You need to love her. And not just love her, but you, there's other verses. We're going to look at it here in Ephesians. You're supposed to love her like your own self. This was a radical statement by Paul. Do you understand the cultural context back then? This still takes place in lots of cultures today. But back then, women had zero rights. They were literally property in most cases. A lot of ladies back then, they were given into marriage very young, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. There was no falling in love like we have here today. A lot of it was arranged marriages. And for Paul to say, well, hold on, you're supposed to love her like your own self. This was radical. This was, this was, this was new. People weren't used to this kind of a statement. You're supposed to do what? The husband was commanded to love his wife. And I want you to turn, we're going to come back to Colossians, but look in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, don't worry, kids, you're coming next, okay? Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 here. And verse 25. This is another letter he's writing to another church on the same topic, but he dives a little bit more into it here with the husbands. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. 
Ephesians 5.25, verse says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. A couple of things about the husbands here. Husbands' love must be realistic. It must be realistic. The husband should have no unrealistic fantasies about the woman he is marrying. Christ loved the church and died for her while we were still sinners and enemies of God. You understand that the relation here is that Christ loves and Christ is the bride, Christ is the groom, the church represents the bride of Christ. There is a, a marriage that takes place, so to speak, between the church and Christ, but God knows we are not perfect. There is no perfect church. Our church here, we strive to be, we strive to study the scriptures and to follow it as much as we can, but at the end of the day, we're still human. We're still subject to making mistakes from time to time, and God knows this. And yet he still married us regardless. He still forgave us. He still dives into a relationship with us. Christ knew that the church was sinful and disobedient at times, yet he still gave his life for the church while knowing the church's faults. His love it was realistic. In a marriage, both mates should understand this reality. In fact, much of premarital counseling is trying to destroy false expectations that are set up through romantic comedies in Hollywood. They portray marriage in many cases unrealistically. And we look at this and that's what we want. What I saw in that movie or what I read in this book, that's the kind of marriage I want. Oftentimes they're unrealistic. We forget the fact that we're all sinners. The husbands must love realistically. And it goes both ways. I'm marrying him, but i got to remember he's not perfect. And oftentimes you don't learn about a lot of the imperfections until after marriage. I didn't know this about you. How did I know that about you? <laughs> and it goes both ways. It has to be realistic love. She must be reformed daily by God's grace, such as should, so should the man, every day being renewed by God's grace. They must be loved. They must love each other through their faults. Scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. That's in 1 Peter 4.8. Having a realistic love is important for both mates because if you don't have it, you will become disillusioned. So Paul is saying, husbands, your love must be realistic, but secondly, your love must be sacrificial. Look at verse 5 again. Excuse me, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He is to love her as Christ loved the church and be willing to die for her. This love that the husband that the husband is supposed to embody is impossible without the grace of God. To love sacrificially means that husbands must at times give up other things to serve and please his wife. He must sacrifice for her. He must sacrifice time, entertainment, friendships, sometimes even careers, in order to love his wife. And thirdly, the husband's, must, husband's love must be purposeful. It must be purposeful. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having, himself, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy 
and without blemish. It must be purposeful. The husband's love is for a reason. To be more like Christ. Sometimes we, we do things so that we can get something back. But Jesus' love was never to love and hope that he received something back. He would love people regardless of how they treated him. Some people wanted to, they were taking Jesus all the way to the cross to be crucified, and Jesus was dying for those people too. He loved with a purpose. Our purpose should be to love because that's what God did for us. To love like Christ loved. The Bible says over and over again that love is of God. And true love is for God. This love also means at times admonishing her to help her know Christ more. And to also accept when she's admonishing you and helping you receive Christ more. Every man should consider if he is ready and willing to love a woman this way before getting married. Is he ready to be that spiritual leader? And lastly here in Ephesians, the husband's love must be personal. Look at verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Every day the husband brushes his teeth, combs his hair. Well, I hope they do this thing. Brush their teeth, combs their hair. Wives, you would know if they do or don't do this. Comb their hair if they have hair. Clothe themselves. Maybe you help clothe them. I don't know. But husbands, generally there's something about them. They try to at least take care of themselves. You may disagree now. Maybe at first they take care of themselves and they let go later on in life. But it's every, uh, as a man would take care of himself, he is to take care of the wife just as much, if not more. I always say this, I always make fun, if you go to a, a gym, you know, and uh, you're working out, and usually in a gym there's one wall that's full, that's a mirror, right? You get like a whole mirror wall. And I think the mirror's intention is so that you can watch your form. If you're curling or you're doing things, you could see, make sure your back's straight. If you're, you know, if you're lifting, you could make sure everything's in proper place. But you know, if you go there, most of the time, guys are just, huh, just seeing if there's any improvement here. And I mean, they're all doing it, and I guess nobody cares. I just always found that funny. Guys, you know, we are to love our wives as much as we love ourselves. And even though we may not look like we take care of ourselves much, we, we still like ourselves, even if there's not much to like. <laughs> Submission and authority in marriage are ugly words in our society. However, there should be no issue when, with submission when someone loves us like this. If a husband loves his wife the way Christ loves us, submission is easy. So perhaps part of the reason, whatever the reason, if it's your fault or her fault, forget the faults. Just look at yourself. How could I be more like Christ? Now we go back to Colossians. Now the children can wake up. Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 20. This is where the parents say, Amen. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. So the first thing we must ask ourselves is, what's a child, right? So we've talked about the, uh, the wife's role, the husband's role, the children's role. And people can differ on this. Technically speaking, we're all 
we, we all have parents, right? We're all kids to some extent. We all, even if your parents aren't alive, you have a mom and a dad, which means you are a child to them. But I, I think in this case, what we're looking at here is if you are alive and you're living under the authority and tutelage of your parents, if you're relying on them, if you're living in their house and they're still paying for your bills and they're still helping you survive, you are their, uh, th- this is the kind of child that we're looking at here today. So you could still be even out of high school, but if you're still relying on your parents, this, then listen up here. Verse 21, verse 20, children obey your parents in all things. Now, we should still, no matter how old we are, always respect our mom and our dad, even if you differ on things. And you're going to differ. As you grow up, you're going you're, you're you're to develop your own mind and your own ideas. Hopefully, they're all correlated through the scriptures. But you're still going to differ on some things. Then it's okay to do that, but you should still always honor and respect your parents. But if uh, when Scripture talks about the pagan world, you know the, the world that denies God, that when they're disobedient to their parents, uh, a disobedience to parents is one way that God characterizes a pagan world. Uh, let me show you. Just turn real quick to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter 1. I want to show you this real quick. Kids, turn to Romans chapter 1, will you? Romans chapter 1. This is Paul here, and he's in his introductory letter here. Look at verse 28. He's talking about the world that we live in. And the result of a Gentile world that is apostatizing, they're falling away from the truth. This is one of the results of it. Verse, there's a whole list of things here. You can read this in your own time. But verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, malicious, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, uh, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, deceitful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection. I'm not going to go into this whole list here. But part of the list of, of identifying what a world is like without God, part of that list is children that don't listen to their parents. Paul says that children disobeying parents marks a world where people deny God. There is a reason it's listed, even in the Ten Commandments. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do you know why people have to go through boot camp? You know, military, you go to boot camp. There's a couple of reasons. And one reason is to weed out the weak from the strong. In order to, I mean, you're, you're a country, and if you want... If you want somebody to defend your country, you want it to be your strongest, your best. So that's part of it. Boot camp is tough, right? And it's, I've been told it's actually more mentally tough than anything. Just telling your body that you can keep going, you can keep pushing. So there's that. But also, boot camp turns you, turns people, turns boys, turns girls into soldiers. Say, what's a soldier? A soldier listens. A soldier obeys. The commanding officer says, drop down and give me 100 push-ups on your knuckles. 
you do it. Even if you can't do it, you do it because that's what you're told to do. Today, wake up everyone, it's 4 a.m., wake up, we're gonna do this. You don't complain, or you, you can complain, I wouldn't recommend it, but soldiers, they do what they're told. That's part of boot camp is breaking your will and turning you into a soldier, to somebody that's compliant and that listens. Because oftentimes, if you're in battle and the commanding officer says, do this, and you say, but why should I do that? You could be dead at that moment. There needs to be immediate obedience. When a child and parent relationship starts to break down, it is detrimental to the rest of society. Therefore, a child's obedience to parents should be strongly enforced. Now, I'm talking to children. Now, the reason most of us don't want to listen to our parents is because it affects our will. It gets under our skin. I don't want to do that. It's my pride that gets in the way. Sometimes our parents do something, we don't like it. Join the club. <laughs> How many of you have ever been told by your parents to do something you didn't want to do? You don't have to raise your hand. Everybody here is going to raise their hand. That's part of life, but it's also part of learning to respect and learning to submit. Because submission is not just for one person. We all have to learn submission. The, the husband has to submit himself ultimately to Jesus Christ, to God. We all do that. The wife is submission to the husband, also to Christ. And the children submit to their parents and also to Christ. We're all submitting. No one's just doing all the submitting around here. And kids, if you can learn to submit at a young age, it's going to be so much easier to serve God when you're older. Submission starts when you're young. We look at our world today, it's marked by a lack of authority. Children no longer obey parents. Students have no respect for teachers. Employees dishonor their employers. And everyone denies the authority of God. It starts back with our identity in Christ and our submitting. A couple of things to consider before we close here. Note that this obedience has limits. There are some rare occasions where parents may ask their children to do something that violates God in the scriptures. This is, a, this is not something that's common. That would, be an, that would be a different situation here. And also something to consider here, the youth ministry versus the home. The youth ministry at church is a great ministry. But it's just an assistant to your home. It shouldn't take the place of your job as a parent at home. You should never... Sometimes I'll be planning a teen activity, and sometimes we'll, we'll plan something, we'll get all the plans set out, and then maybe somebody will, um, somebody will call and say, oh, I, I can't make it, you know, I just don't feel like coming today. Ah, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's always a bummer. But I loved it. When somebody, when a kid, well, I actually loved it when they would just say, I'm not coming or coming in general. That usually doesn't happen. But if somebody did call or text and say, Pastor Tim, I can't make it today because my family's going to, we're going to have a family outing today. That, that's more important. Family, especially if you're a busy family and finding family time is tough. If there's ever a question of, should I come to the youth rally? Oh, my, my kids are going to, or my family, we're going we're gonna to go play bowling together. Family. Hierarchy is God. Family. Family is important. One day as children, you're going you're gonna to wake up, you're going to be old, and you're going to remember the days that you wasted as a child, that you could have spent more time with your family, but you were too busy in yourself thinking about yourself. We don't even know how much time we have left on earth to live. 
Live it to the fullest. Live it with God. Live it with your family. Families take precedence over youth ministry. That's controversial in some churches. But I believe wholeheartedly that if a family is serving God and loving Him together, that is the best environment to learn about Jesus Christ and learn about God is inside the family. The church is important, and you should make church a priority as much as possible. If you're free, you're available, uh, come to activities. Now, Sunday church should be at the number one priority list as a family. Hey, guys, listen up. We're not planning any parties, no activities. Church is where we come and we worship God. And your kids should know. If, you're, if a friend asks them, hey, can you come, from, come over to my house on Sunday? Or, and, and, and the kids should know, sorry. Now, I, there's, no, there's no way that's going to happen. Saturday, maybe. Maybe this day or that day. But sorry, no, Sundays, we go to church. And there's no getting around it. That should be an established fact in homes. But the family is vitally important. And it is the parent's job to raise the children to love God. Say, well, I'm still learning it myself. Learn it together. Admit that to your children. You're still learning. You're still growing. It's okay. Children know when you're faking it. And the last thing we see here today is the parent's responsibility to their children. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Lest they be discouraged. Just a few quick points here. Number one, parents provoke their children by not disciplining them. Now, how you choose to discipline, that's up to you. But there does need to be rules and regulations in the home. Another thing here, parents provoke their children by abusing them or giving improper discipline. So you have to be careful how you do it. And this should be something discussed between you and the wife. And before God, Lord, how can I honor you the best? How can I help my children serve you with their life? What is the best way? Parents provoke their children by neglecting them. Number C. We can oftentimes even provoke them by just not being there for them. And look, there are seasons of the year where this is difficult, especially if you have a job. Some of you, I've talked to you before, your job has peak seasons. You know, maybe you work in retail or something. There are times of the year, Christmas, these times where, look, your family knows dad's going to be really busy for the next couple of weeks. But dad's going to make up, he always makes up for it afterwards. It's okay when we're we're all going to have busy seasons. Kids, you're going to have busy seasons. I hope, you know, you, when midterms and tests come, you actually try to do, do okay in those. We all have these seasons. But generally as a whole, we got to be there for each other. Also, parents provoke their children by never encouraging them and showing them affection. This is something that is not always natural, especially for the man. So uh, I, I grew up in a home where my dad never verbally said affection, but he didn't have to because he showed it in other ways. And I guess me and him, we were the same. So instead of, he never had to say, I love you, buddy, even though he did from time to time. But he, he knew how to show it. And I knew how he showed it. And learn how to show affection to your kids. And kids also receive affection in different ways. Perhaps sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's through this way or through this category. But it's a a process. And believe me, I'm still working on all of these topics myself. And last one here. Parents provoke their children by showing favoritism 
towards other siblings. This is a given. But yet, if we're not careful, it could happen. Even in your own heart. Oh, but this one's smart. This one's obedient. This one's listening. This one doesn't listen to anything I have to say. This one's always rebellious. So if you have a real rebellious child and a, and a very obedient child, just by default, you're going to cater to this one because he's more obedient. Well, Pastor Tim, that's not my fault. That's his fault. Okay. But once again, he may be going through something you're not aware of, and if you start slowly pulling away from him, he's not, this person generally, this child, is generally just going to keep going this way. So you have to be careful, no matter what kind of child you have, to never show favoritism and to keep all things in order under the tutelage of Jesus Christ and love like Christ did. There's more to be said on this, and this is maybe a different topic than you were expecting to have this morning. But the roles in the home are important, but it starts, it starts with your relationship with God. You, the dad, your, it, your role starts with you in the morning saying, God, I'm imperfect. I'm not the husband I should be. I'm not the father I should be. I'm on my knees this morning because I want you to help me be that. And the wife should get up. Whether it's the mornings or the nights, there should be a part of the day where they get on their knees and they say, Lord, I'm not the best wife. I'm not the best mom at times. I'm not the best this or that, but I want to be. Please help me be that today. And children, you need to get up in the mornings or at some time in the day and say, Lord, I'm not the best child. Sometimes I frustrate my parents. I'm not the best student in school sometimes, but I want to be. Help me to be that. It starts with your relationship with God. And maybe you're here today and you don't even have a relationship with God. Maybe today if you were to die right now, you don't even know what would happen to you. Then you need to get that settled first. Because the Bible says that you can know for sure that you can have a relationship with God. You don't have to guess. But you can today say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are God and there is no other God. Come into my life, save me, and direct me in your ways. You can have that relationship with God today. If I could ask you to please stand as we close our service here in prayer. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.